Chapters 9 and 10 of Armageddon 24-1980 by Philip Francis Nolan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 The Fight in the Tower So far we had not laid eyes on a Han. The tower seemed deserted. Blash and Gaunt, however, assured me that there would be at least one man on duty in the military offices, though he would probably be asleep, and two or three in the library proper and the projectoscope plant. "'We've got to put them out of commission,' I said. "'Did you bring the dope cans, Wilma?' "'Yes,' she said. Two for each. Here.' And she distributed them. We were now two levels below the roof, and at the point where we were to separate. I did not want to let Wilma out of my sight, but it was necessary. According to our plan, Barker was to make his way to the projectoscope plant, Blash and I to the library, and Wilma and Gaunt to the military office. Blash and I traversed a long corridor and paused at the great arched doorway of the library. Cautiously we peered in. Seated at three great switchboards were library operatives. Occasionally one of them would reach lazily for a lever or sleepily push a button, as little numbered lights winked on and off. They were answering calls for electrograph and viewplate records on all sorts of subjects from all sections of the city. I praised my companions of the situation. "'Better wait a bit,' Blash added. "'The calls will lessen shortly.' Wilma reported an officer in the military office sound asleep. "'Give him the can, then,' I said. Barker was to do nothing more than keep watch in the projectoscope plant, and a few moments later he reported himself well-concealed with a splendid view of the floor. "'I think we can take a chance now,' Blash said to me, and at my nod he opened the lid of his dope can. Of course the fumes did not affect us through our helmets. They were absolutely without odor or visibility, and in a few seconds the librarians were unconscious. We stepped into the room. There ensued considerable cautious observation and experiment on the part of Gaunt, working from the military office and Blash in the library, while Wilma and I, with drawn swords and sharply attuned microphones, stood guard and occasionally patrolled nearby corridors. "'I hear something approaching,' Wilma said after a bit with excitement in her voice. It's a soft, gliding sound. That's an elevator somewhere, Barker cut in from the projectoscope floor. Can you locate it? I can't hear it. It's to the east of me, she replied. And to my west, said I, faintly, catching it. It's between us, Wilma, and nearer you than me. Be careful. Have you got any information yet, Blash and Gaunt? Getting it now, one of them replied. Give us two minutes more. Keep at it, then, I said. We'll guard. The soft gliding sound ceased. I think it's very close to me, Wilma almost whispered. Come closer, Tony. I have a feeling something is going to happen. I've never known my nerves to get taut like this without reason. In some alarm I launched myself down the corridor in a great leap toward the intersection whence I knew I could see her. In the middle of my leap my ultraphone registered her gasp of alarm. 
the next instant i glided to a stop at the intersection to see wilma backing toward the door of the military office her sword red with blood and an inert form on the corridor floor two other hans were circling to either side of her with wicked-looking knives while a third evidently a high officer judging by the resplendence of his garb tugged desperately to get an electrophone instrument out of a bulky pocket if he ever gave the alarm there was no telling what might happen to us i was at least seventy feet away but i crouched low and sprang with every bit of strength in my legs it would be more correct to say that i dived for i reached the fellow head-on with no attempt to draw my legs beneath me some instinct must have warned him for he turned suddenly as i hurtled close to him but by this time i had sunk close to the floor and had stiffened myself rigidly lest a dragging knee or foot might just prevent my reaching him i brought my blade upward and over it was a vicious slash that laid him open bisecting him from groin to chin and his dead body toppled down on me as i slid to a tangled stop the other two startled turned wilma leaped at one and struck him down with a side slash i looked up at this instant and the dazed fear on his face at the length of her leap registered vividly the hans knew nothing of our inert tron belts it seemed and these leaps and dives of ours filled them with terror as i rose to my feet a gory mess wilma with a poise and speed which i found time to admire even in this crisis again leaped this time she dove head first as i had done and with a beautifully executed thrust ran the last han through the throat uncertainly she scrambled to her feet staggered queerly and then sank gently prone on the corridor she had fainted at this juncture blash and gaunt reported with elation that they had the record we wanted back to the roof everybody i ordered as i picked wilma up in my arms with her interon belt she felt as light as a feather gaunt joined me at once from the military office and at the intersection of the corridor we came upon blash waiting for us barker however was not in evidence where are you barker i called go ahead he replied i'll be with you on the roof at once we came out in the open without any further mishap and i instructed gibbons in the ship to light the knob on the end of the ultron wire it flashed dully a few feet away from us just how he had maneuvered the ship to keep our end of the line in position without its swinging in a tremendous arc i have never been able to understand had not the night been an unusually still one he could not have checked the initial pendulum-like movements as it was there was considerable air current at certain of the levels and in different directions too but gibbons was an expert of rare ability and sensitivity in the handling of a rocket ship and he managed with the aid of his delicate instruments to sense the drifts almost before they affected the fine ultron wire and to neutralize them with little shifts in the position of the ship blash and gaunt fastened their rings to the wire and i hooked my own and wilma's on too but on looking around i found barker was still missing barker come i called we're waiting coming he replied and indeed at that instant his figure appeared up the ramp he chuckled as he fastened his ring to the wire and said something about a little surprise he had left for the hans 
Don't reel in the wire more than a few hundred feet, I instructed Gibbons. It will take too long to wind it in. We'll float up, and when we are aboard, we can drop it. In order to float up, we had to dispense with a pound or two of weight apiece. We hurled our swords from us and kicked off our shoes as Gibbons reeled up the line a bit and then, letting go of the wire, began to hum upward on our rings with increasing velocity. The rush of air brought Wilma to, and I hastily explained to her that we had been successful. Receding far below us now, I could see our dully shining knob swinging to and fro in an ever-widening arc as it crossed and recrossed the black square of the tower roof. As an extra precaution, I ordered Gibbons to shut off the light and to show one from the belly of the ship, for so great was our speed now that I began to fear we would have difficulty in checking ourselves. We were literally falling upward and with terrific acceleration. Fortunately, we had several minutes in which to solve this difficulty, which none of us, strangely enough, had foreseen. It was Gibbons who found the answer. "'You'll be all right if you grab the wire tight when I give the word,' he said. First, I'll start reeling it in at full speed. You won't get much of a jar, and then I'll decrease its speed again gradually, and its weight will hold you back. Are you ready? One, two, three. We all grabbed tightly with our gloved hands as he gave the word. We must have been rising a good bit faster than he figured, however, for it wrenched our arms considerably, and the maneuver set up a sickening pendulum motion. For a while all we could do was swing there in an arc that may have been a quarter of a mile across, about three and a half miles above the city, and still more than a mile from our ship. Gibbons skillfully took up the slack as our momentum pulled up the line. Then at last we had ourselves under control again, and continued our upward journey, checking our speed somewhat with our gloves. There was not one of us who did not breathe a big sigh of relief when we scrambled through the hatch safely into the ship again, cast off the Ultron line, and slammed the trap shut. Little realizing that we had a still more terrible experience to go through, we discussed the information Blash and Gaunt had between them extracted from the Han records and the advisability of ultraphoning Hart at once. End of Chapter 9 Chapter 10 the walls of hell. The traitors were, it seemed, a degenerate gang of Americans located a few miles north of New York on the wooded banks of the Hudson, the Sensings. They had exchanged scraps of information to the Hans in return for several old repeller ray machines and the privilege of tuning in on Han electronic power broadcasts for their operation provided their ships agreed to subject themselves to the order of the Han traffic office while aloft. The rest wanted to ultraphone their news at once, since there was always danger that we might never get back to the gang with it. I objected, however. The sensings would be likely to pick up our message. Even if we used the directional projector, they might have scouts out to the west and south in the big intergang stretches of country. They would flee to New York and escape the punishment they merited. It seemed to be vitally important that they should not, for the sake of example to other weak groups among the American gangs, as well as to prevent a crisis in which they might clear more vital information to the enemy. Out to sea again, I ordered Gibbons. They'll be less likely to look for us in that direction. Easy, boss, easy, he replied. 
Wait until we get up a mile or two more. They must have discovered evidences of our raid by now, and their disray wall may go in operation any moment. Even as he spoke, the ship lurched downward and to one side. There it is, he shouted. Hang on, everybody. We're going to nose straight up. And he flipped the rocket motor control wide open. Looking through one of the rear ports, I could see a nebulous, luminous ring, and on all sides the atmosphere took on a faint iridescence. We were almost over the destructive range of the disintegrator ray wall, a hollow cylinder of annihilation shooting upward from a solid ring of generators surrounding the city. It was the main defense system of the Hans, which had never been used except in periodic tests. They may or may not have suspected that an American rocket ship was within the cylinder. Probably they had turned on their generators more as a precaution to prevent any reaching a position above the city. But even at our present great height, we were in great danger. It was a question how much we might have been harmed by the rays themselves, for their effective range was not much less than seven or eight miles. The greater danger lay in the terrific downward rush of air within the cylinder to replace that which had been burned into nothingness by the continual play of the disintegrators. The air fell into the cylinder with the force of a gale. It would be rushing toward the wall from the outside with terrific force also, but naturally the effect was intensified on the interior. Our ship vibrated and trembled. We had only one chance of escape to fight our way well above the current. To drift down with it meant ultimately and inevitably to be sucked into the destruction wall at some lower level. But very gradually and jerkily our upward movement, as shown on the indicators, began to increase, and after an hour of desperate struggle we were free of the maelstrom and into the rarefied upper levels. The terror beneath us was now invisible through several layers of cloud formations. Gibbons brought the ship back to an even keel and drove her eastward into one of the most brilliantly gorgeous sunrises I have ever seen. We described a great circle to the south and west in a long, easy dive, for he had cut out his rocket motors to save them as much as possible. We had drawn terrifically on their fuel reserves in our battle with the elements. For the moment, the atmosphere below cleared and we could see the Jersey coast far beneath, like a great map. "'We're not through yet,' remarked Gibbon suddenly, pointing at his periscope and adjusting it to telescopic focus. "'A Han ship and a drop ship at that, and he's seen us. If he whips that beam of his on us, we're done.' I gazed, fascinated, at the viewplate. What I saw was a cigar-shaped ship, not dissimilar to our own in design, and, from the proportional size of its ports, of about the same size as our swoopers. We learned later that they carried crews, for the most part, of not more than three or four men. They had streamlined hulls and tails that embodied universal jointed double fishtail rudders. In operation they rose to great heights on their powerful repeller rays, then gathered speed either by a straight nose-dive or an inclined dive to which they sometimes used the repeller ray slanted at a sharp angle. He was already above us, though several miles to the north. He could, of course, try to get on our tail and spear us with his beam as he dropped at us from a great height. Suddenly his beam blazed forth in a blinding flash, whipping downward slowly to our right. 
he went through a peculiar corkscrew-like evolution evidently maneuvering to bring his beam to bear on us with a spiral motion gibbons instantly sent our ship into a series of evolutions that must have looked like those of a frightened hen alternately he used the forward and reverse rocket blasts and in varying degree we fluttered we shot suddenly to right and left and dropped like a plummet in uncertain movements but all the time the han scout dropped toward us determinedly whipping the air around us with his beam once it sliced across beneath us not more than a hundred feet and we dropped with a jar into the pocket formed by the destruction of the air he had dropped to within a mile of us and was coming with the speed of a projectile when the end came gibbons always swore it was sheer luck maybe it was but i like pilots who are lucky that way in the midst of a dizzying fluttering maneuver of our own with the han ship enlarging to our gaze with terrifying rapidity and its beam slowly slicing toward us in what looked like certain destruction within the second i saw gibbon's fingers flick at the lever of his rocket gun and a split second later the han ship flew apart like a clay pigeon we staggered and fluttered crazily for several moments while gibbon struggled to bring our ship into balance and a section of about four square feet in the side of the ship near the stern slowly crumbled like rusted metal his beam actually had touched us but our explosive rocket had got him a thousandth of a second sooner part of our rudder had been annihilated and our motor damaged but we were able to swoop gently back across jersey fortunately crossing the ship lanes without sighting any more han craft and finally settling to rest in the little glade beneath the trees near hart's camp End of chapter ten